Hey everybody, this is Ari in the Air. Welcome back to the podcast. Stoked you're here today. I have yet another interview of me being on someone else's podcast. This time it's called Mountain Whispers. I will play the intro here for you to introduce it to you. So we'll get right into it. If you like this show and want to support it, consider supporting me on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Air. And if you're interested in philosophical coaching, check out airyintheair.com. There's a link there to schedule a free coaching call. So without further ado, here's my interview with Tim from Mountain Whispers. Welcome to Mountain Whispers podcast. I'm Tim Stewart, and this is a show exploring the deeper lessons that we learn from the outdoors. I chat to interesting people within mountain culture about the way that the outdoors has transformed them, their most vivid experiences, how they got to where they are, as well as lessons in flow, fear, risk, death, and everything in between. The aim is to explore how adventure sports and the time we spend outdoors help us find meaning and transformation in an increasingly crazy world. Today I chat to Ari in the air. Ari is a professional mountain athlete, podcaster, and filmmaker. He operates in multiple arenas, including paragliding, skiing, highlining, and I'm sure many more that we didn't actually even get to talk about. He's also a very deep thinker, a philosopher of sorts, which makes for a, a really great conversation. He came onto my radar when he gave a talk on the YouTube channel The Stoa, which I'll link in the show notes, where he introduces the concept of brinksmanship, an art of living at your edge and how the mindset one brings to their adventures and designing adventures can be turned into a practice applied to all aspects of life. We unpack brinksmanship in our conversation, but in essence, it involves taking what your passion is leading you to, taking what you believe you're capable of, and taking what scares you to find the sweet spot of where edges and where to lean into. You've probably heard the adage, life starts where your comfort zone ends. This model takes that and adds some very useful color to it. So we talk about that. We also talk about flow states and optimal states of consciousness in the outdoors that we're able to access at the edge. And Ari actually very well articulates some of the pitfalls of chasing these experiences. As I believe I've mentioned before, a lot of my thinking around peak states comes from the work of Robert Anton Wilson and Jamie Wheel, who refer to the practice of designing experiences of accessing these states as something called hedonic engineering. As I laid this out, Ari very well articulates the dangers of orientating an adventure just around the access or the chance of accessing flow or a transcendent experience. And then instead, it's more effective to focus on the inputs of getting outdoors, of honing the sensitivity of what we're capable of today, of feeling the terrain underneath us, and treating any shift in consciousness that comes from it as a true blessing rather than the goal of the end in mind. It's something that I've I'm definitely been guilty of, so it was a breath of fresh air for me. We talk about the mind-body connection and how that relationship can change or, or show itself uh, when we're in the outdoors and, and how we can develop a practice of deepening that. 
And we also talk about some of the, the pitfalls that come from glamorizing mountain culture. So as you'll see, it's a very juicy philosophical conversation. I think you'll get a lot out of it. Please enjoy. Ari in the air. I'm here with Ari in the air. Or is that, how do you like to be referred to? Ari in the air or Ari Delashmit? Am I pronouncing the last name right? <laughs> yeah, I'm Ari in the air. It's fine. Ari in the air. For the things that live on the internet. Ari, welcome to Mountain Whispers. How are you doing? Yeah, thanks, man. Yeah, I'm doing good. So as I said, I came across uh, your work on the Stoa, where you did a, um, an exploration, an introduction of the idea of brinksmanship, which I, I really want to spend this time exploring. Um, in order to introduce that, I'd, I'd love to just learn um, a little bit more about how you, uh, how you got to this place. Um, I, I know right now, just from our, our previous conversations, that uh, you're, you're a skier, you're a highliner, you're, you're a paraglider, um, you're transitioning into be, becoming an endurance athlete, expedition racer. Um, where would you say this started? Hmm. I think the start is being in the middle of three boys and having a father who is a outdoor recreator of a pretty high level, um, which is a scenario. It's a configuration that pushed me to jump off a higher shit and go faster and led me to doing my first flip on skis when I was 12 and has basically just was, it set me up for a, a life of, further and higher and faster and more spectacular hmm. so you learned to to do flips and get airtime before your your brain developed to a point of telling you that's really stupid definitely yeah i mean even before skiing i was i could do a flip on the ground really cool it's funny my 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 friends and i we we all uh got into adventure sports late and at Whistler Bike Park, for example, just uh, even even the resort, the the level that these like kids are at is is unbelievable. And I think it's uh, in this sport you're at a great advantage from from learning this before your your brain starts screaming at you everything, all the reasons not to do this stuff. Yeah, I was a freestyle ski coach for a number of years, and you know the kids that I coached when they were ten have now gone on to like win the X games. And so the advantage that they have of that is just massive. That can't be overstated, but there's also this other scenario that I've witnessed in highlining, which was when I started highlining, you know, the world record was like 85 meters and then became 115 meters. Um, and now, you know, I've walked across high lines in excess of two kilometers long. The people who are learning how to highline now that the highlines are just huge are having a much different trajectory, especially mentally, because they never have the experience of it being so short you can throw a rock across it. It's always this big object. And so the, the learning curve seems to skip this part where you get afraid because the line is bigger and bigger and bigger. And you just actually just focus on the walking the whole time, which was such a huge step for me 
you know, learning the pace and learning the, you know, being afraid of the long, the, you know, the distance, the horizontal exposure. So just in case anyone hasn't heard of Highline before, do you want to describe it? Yeah. It's a type of slacklining where we slackline between cliffs and rocks and peaks and instead of between trees in the park. Mm. And so it sounds like what you're describing is like the learning curve is different because am I correct that now that the standard is multiple kilometers there, they're immediately jumping into not feeling the end the way that you can, if you can throw a rock across that. Yeah. So I, I can speculate on what it is, what the psychological you know, mechanisms are that this learning curve is changing so much, but just the normalization of, you know, 200 meter long high lines, you know, like I've, I've had a number of people that I've introduced to highlining that the first highline they ever get on is 200 meters long, which when I started highlining was, you know, more than twice the world record. It was impossible. It was unfathomable, you know? So, there is some personal psychological normalization, but I would also just like chalk this up to like our collective understanding of anything. Like what we collectively believe is possible is something that is shared in us. And what we, as humans, we're just such deep imitators. And so what we see imitated for us becomes possible. And what is possible is reasonable, right? What is impossible, the feeling, the feeling of really being on the edge of sport, like where you're doing something that no one has done before is a very different feeling than doing something that you haven't done before that you've seen lots of people do. It's a very different feeling. And that is, I think that's due to our connection to the collective. Like we are tuned in to where humanity is and what is possible. And like, whether we think of that as parental, like that we see our parents do things and then we think that becomes normalized um, or in the larger picture of sport. Um, yeah. We, we definitely, our nervous system knows when, when we're doing something we haven't seen anyone do before. Mm. Yeah, I, I remember uh, I, I've heard that uh, applied to the four minute history of the four minute mile a lot. And the, the way you described that really just landed with me in that in, in many ways it takes the person who believes something is possible or is willing to challenge what is possible for it to like open up in the collective consciousness. Yeah. And, you know, like to go even a step further, you know, like the four minute mile is a great example. I think that the minute that someone breaks the four minute mile, whether it's through the ether or through consciousness, when someone learns that someone has done that, it unlocks something, mm. right? Like, and rapidly after that, you see collegiate athletes run a four minute mile. Like that once the record is broken, it precipitously falls that more and more people are capable of doing that. And is that because like more and more human bodies got that fast? Well, there's probably that too, but in terms of like science, there's been 
um, you know, what do we call it? It's like um, simultaneous realization where multiple scientists around the world have a similar groundbreaking realization simultaneously. Um, you know, in, in Liz Gilbert's book, Big Magic, she talks about ideas being their own entity that float around the world mm -hmm. and that they don't come from people. They're out there and people are the conduit for ideas. And I think that the idea of something being possible is also, you know, I think that's an apt analogy that things that are possible just like float around. And when they land in a person who's capable of, of bringing it to fruition and it comes to fruition, then that just becomes more and more uh, real for other people to be inspired by and to latch onto and be encouraged and empowered by. I love that analogy. Um, what, what that ties into for me is like the idea of, of a daemon, but also just how like in order to drop into flow so often you need to get out of the way of yourself. And, and so applying that to like the four, the four minute mile analogy, I remember I, I was always very skeptical of the analogy. I, my background's in track and field and um, I would always explain the reasons why not. And as I reflect on it, it, made me realize that I was holding that belief because it was related to my own potential. If that makes sense. Like it was a, a belief to protect my own ego that like we have inherent limitations on, on our potential and things like that. I'm curious, do you have any early memories of, um, of direct confrontation of fear or Direct confrontation of fear? Yeah. Of being terrified of something and doing it anyway as a kid. Oh my God, so many. So many of those. You know, the... I think the story of my first backflip on skis is like a great um, example of this because essentially I had no mentors for this. Like I had seen it on in videos that people could do backflips, but like off what jump and how fast do you go? And like, how do you do it technically? Like I had none of that. I had my older brother and his buddies who took their snowboards and pushed up a bunch of snow into a pile of like what it, I know now is just the jankiest jump you could build. And my first try going off of it, I went so far, I went way past the landing and just landed flat, luckily in like three feet of powder. And just like, we all just like died laughing. But, you know, skiing was the first sport that really like captured my soul and really like kind of lit me on fire. And there was this, there's this part of skiing that is time bound. That is like, you're afraid and you buckle your boots and you start skiing towards the jump and you're still afraid, but the fear is now kinetic and it's moving and it has something to be, it's got a direction now and it's being channeled and there's a temporal aspect of it. You're scared, but are you going to try three, two, one, yes or no? And 
you try, and then soon after that, you crash or land. Okay, so I went through this experience of like afraid, channeling the fear in a kinetic way that's moving, and then have a time-bound deadline of try or not try. And then right after that, a objective reality judgment of my performance, crash or land. So skiing was the first thing that I got to interact with this fear and I did it incessantly 150 days a year for a decade. Wow. At what stage are you making that yes or no commitment when you're hitting a jump or, or a trick? What's like the what about it? Like at what stage are you making the commitment yes or no? The way you describe it, it sounds like right up to the last moment. You're... I mean, I've experienced myself chicken out at the last minute. You know, I've experienced myself, you know, like cork 10, cork 10, cork 10. Oh, okay. Cork seven. Like, well. So I've experienced that. And so there always is room for you to chicken out, right? Like you're making your own standard here. No one's forcing you to do anything. You're choosing to go off this jump and huck your body into some off axis rotation in hopes that you just like have a totally great time in the air and stomp it. And it just feels awesome. Looks awesome. Everyone approves yourself included. This is my choice. And so I do have that agency up till the very last second. And there's times where it's like, I really want to do the trick, but it's like, it's not there. Like the run-in was bumpy and I'm off balance and I'm like, or I don't have the speed or like what, for whatever reason, like I got to call it off. So I'm like, as a run into the jump, I'm still looking for like stars to align objectively for my speed, my body position, for the wind, the all these different things. I'm still looking for the stars to align. And one of those stars or all entire constellation of those stars is my own commitment and feeling of confidence. How do you feel? What has the journey been like of getting a deep awareness of that? Do you say commitment of confidence? You, you worded it perfectly, commitment of confidence. Commitment and confidence. Commitment yeah. and confidence. It's a somatic feeling, right? Yeah, it's um, it's not just somatic. It's uh, It's actually like an integrated, it should be an integrated thing. It should be an alignment between like, you know, if your body's like, just do it. And your head's like, you're not going fast enough. Then just like, there's got to be a, you know, there's needs to be an alignment here of like, okay, my like, and, you know, my, my brain, the things it knows and like it's reasoning and, and quick judgments and my body of like how prepared and committed and confident I feel on that day. Like I said, that's a whole constellation of stars that needs to align that is very complex, right? That's like the, that one can't be engineered. And I just like have to be sensitive to that as I go flying towards a jump. Mm. Yeah. I, I hear when I can't be engineered and I, and I really want to find 
what is the term for making sure that it, it all lines up? There's, there's an element of ritual here. There's an element of deep presence. Like if it, if we're, you're not engineering peak states in, in, in an optimal state of performance, are you curating? Are you gardening? What, what's the, the, the verb in order to position yourself for, for optimum performance? Okay. Well, there's just like a couple things that you said that I'll just cut away from. So there was like, you said, making sure futile. You can't make sure, right? You have to make space for there's engineering and you can't engineer it. You have to, like you say, it's like a, it's like a practice. It's like a practice. You're calling the thing in. You're not like, it's a daemon, man. You don't have a fucking leash on it. It's got a leash on you. I like to point to sensitivity that you actually just become sensitive of when it's there and when it's not there and when it feels right and when it doesn't feel right. Right. You know, on the flip side of that is like, you kind of got to go through the motions to see if you're going to feel it that day. You know, like to quote Liz Gilbert again, it's like the muse shows up at the implement, not at the artist. You don't wake up with inspiration for your skis, your skis hold it. You got to get on your fucking skis to, to, to harness it. Um, so you don't wait till you just like jump bolt up right out of bed. You got to show up. You got to make that practice. You got to make that space for that thing to emerge. Um, so yeah, I point to a sensitivity that you're just kind of like patient and sensitive but you're also persistent, diligent, disciplined, discerning. You're like you're putting in the work, you're fucking, you eat the right things. You go to sleep at the right time. You take care of your body in a certain way. You have these practices. You have these relationships in your life that help facilitate these things. Cause none of this shit can you do alone? Like all these different things are the ingredients that you can control of which there are many. But that only gets you to the fucking arena. Because at that point, there are ingredients that you cannot control and you can never control. And it is a blessing when they all line up and you just find yourself having a peak experience. You find yourself in peak performance. You find yourself elated and enamored with life and just ecstatic. And those are things to be incredibly grateful for and to be inspired by. But the tone that we're talking about it here that I'm taking, that I'm taking conflict with is that we're trying to commodify it. That we have it and now we want it back. I had it. So now how do I get that? And also I had it and you've never had it. So let me teach you how to have it. And there's both good and bad in that, right? That like, you know, in my presentation at the Stowe, I talk about the cycle of inspiration that like you do something incredible and I see it and it shows me that something out there is possible that I aspire to. And through my aspiration and through my diligent work that was based on inspiration of what I saw another person do and found possible, I achieve something. And by my achieving, 
something inspiring, I inspire others, right? Right, like I can go off a jump and do a sweet trick and I can teach this to 10 to 16 year old kids who then go and win the X games, who inspire the shit out of me that make me want to go get back on my skis. And there's this like cycle of inspiration and it is a deeply rooted thing in human experience because we are at the very bottom imitators. We're imitators of one another. We're observers and imitators. And so the cycle of inspiration is really like, that's so salient. And so it's a beautiful thing to want to bring other people into this cycle of inspiration. But the paradigm that we live in of, of our economic model is a lens that taint, that I don't want to say taints because that has a negative connotation, that it parses, that it filters every single thing that we talk about and do through this economic lens. So literally our sporting activities that take us to peak experiences that allow us transcendental and transformative experiences, we then take and we try to commodify and we try to show it to other people. We try to engineer it. We try to make sure that we can get it again. We try to find out how we can find ourselves in these things because the fucking slog that took me 15 years of eating shit to bring me to this moment, to this day where the snow and the sun and the wind and my friends and myself and my diet and my everything lined up and it felt so good. And I so fucking want to be back there. It's not that we shouldn't do that, but we got to be really mindful of what we're doing when we talk as professional athletes about what we're doing, right? Because like my second self, the, per, the part of me that lives on the internet is more glamorous than my life. And I do my best to share on the internet the real parts of me crashing and crying and striving and feeling frustrated. And that's not to say that I try to keep out those transcendental moments where the ecstatic euphoria of my own peak experience overtakes me, but there's like expectation management that needs to be done here. That the fucking journey towards these things of, because here's the thing, if I tell people about these experiences and they try to go out and have these experiences on skis, like I did, then they might be following my path, right? Not everyone is like, not everyone's going to have peak experiences in the mountains upside down, 40 feet off the ground, like I am, right? So instead of talking about the hypothetical destination of peak experiences and how we engineer them, we can have a meta awareness of like, one, there's like a psychological model that's playing out in us. That is, we are seeking this thing and we are trying to control it, or we are trying to bring it in. And that's not, that's not to say that we shouldn't like we absolutely should 
we absolutely should strive towards elevated states of being absolutely 100% as much as we can. What defines elevated states of being is a really important definition, right? Which I think is skewed by how we see like what our paradigm of value is, but there's a pitfall. I'll, I'll just like, I can just tell people directly that like the constant search to find yourself in peak experiences will lead you to depression. Yeah, this is, uh, I, I really like the color you gave to that. Have you engaged with the work of Jamie Wheel at all? Of course. Yeah. Have you, you've read Recapture the Rapture? Uh, no, I haven't. It's, um, he, he, uh, I'm familiar with the premise. Yeah. And, and part two, he calls it the alchemist cookbook. It is, he's expounding on the work of Larry and, and, um, Robert Anton Wilson on the model of hedonic engineering. Um, it, it's not from a commodification lens though. There is definitely like probably like the pitfall or, or the, the trap of that, that's, that creeps into it. But the, the premise of it is um, that peak states of consciousness bring us inspiration, healing, and connection. And that is what, like managing that like an alchemist is, is how that you can keep the flywheel going mm. of that. Um, I like that. I, I've been, been a student for, for a couple of years now practicing that. And, and you, what you speak is very, very live. Like I, 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 I strive um, I, I've definitely fallen into the trap of like building everything around that peak state of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And it, it adds a lot of volatility. Yeah. Yeah. Like the, just the, the act of craving it. Oh like, yeah. Introduces oh. the depression as well. Mm. So my friend, Peter Lindbergh and Daniel Kazanjian at the STOA have created this program called BSD beyond self-discipline. Are you familiar with that? Familiar with that. I haven't taken it. Okay. So I was in the, you know, version zero, you know, like some close friends of the STOA who we kind of tested this thing out together. Right. And it, it helped me change my life and the delineation of what they, of the goals was one of the most important is one of the most profound and important things of the program. And it's, I think it perfectly illustrates what I'm talking about here. The difference is that in BSD, we basically make this plan. We set these goals and we don't ever set an output goal. We only set input goals. And what I mean by that is that we don't set goals for achieving things for certain kinds of growth or certain kinds of income, we only set input goals of what we are going to do. So my input goals were 7 a.m. no snooze, cold shower before coffee, 100 push-ups, 15-minute stretching, all of this before coffee, and then two hours deep work, no distractions. There was no output there. I was not, I did not set the goal of experiencing a peak state of consciousness. I set the goal of get up, take care of your body, do your work, go outside. What happens after that? It's fucking as much in the ether as anything. You know, all I can do 
They show up at the implement. And like Wheel is talking about here, to be an alchemist of it is to transmute things. It's to, it's to be sensitive to what energies are alive and what needs to happen so that I can set myself up to be in the arena. What happens in the arena is part of the universe. That's complexity that's nearly over my head that I, frankly, I, I think it's better for me to, that's like, there's so much noise in that, that the signal is difficult to decipher. So what I can control is what time I get out of bed. What I can control is what I do. And what I can't control is what comes from that. And our mental states and our states of experience are some of those things, some of those things that we can't control. We can't make ourselves feel a certain way. We can do the thing that will take us outside and take us into the place and the places and the activities and the heart rate zones that we think are the ingredients to alchemize these peak states of experience. But at the end of the day, we cannot make ourselves feel a peak state of experience. So we don't set the goal of having a peak state of experience. We set the goal of getting out of bed and taking cold showers and sitting in meditation and all of these things that we know we can do because we can't make ourselves feel peak states of experience. Riffing on the, the, the metaphor or the, the analogy of an alchemist um, in the outdoors, I, I think um, you, you were speaking before we hit record on um, the, the nerve issue you're having on the, the long 23 um, hour expedition. Uh-huh. Um, something that I, um, went through and something I'm playing with is that, so I ran uh, track in college and, and my career ended from a chronic injury. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, and I went through four different physios, two chiropractors, like a, uh, 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 orthopedic surgeon, a neurophysiological doctor, whatever. Um, what, it, what made the most impact was um, a neuromuscular specialist and then probably four slow years of getting a better like mind body connection with the, yeah. like the complexity of the, the, the movement in, um, in the hip. I haven't like, I spent, so that was my athletic career ended probably my last race was like 2016 or so. Um, and I, for between 2016 and 2021, I, I was never able to do more than say two runs a week. And I've, um, I've slowly been able to in the last year uh, increase like the length and frequency that I've been running. I did, I had um, like a, a trail race earlier this year and um, I just like the, the competitor, it's funny, like the, uh, in many ways, the competitor in me like uh, took over my personality and was, it was kind of destructive in, in, in many ways. Um, but it also feels like it's been repressed in the last couple of years or, or it's like been sent to, to a corner and, and it, uh, it was, it was amazing to enter competition again. Um, but during the, the race, I started feeling this nervous coming up in my hip. Um, and I almost felt like there was, a like a, a psychosomatic connection that I could control and that I was in changing my narrative and focus and, and not panicking about this, like this pain that was coming. It, it, 
almost sent it to the back of my mind for the for the uh for the duration of that competition versus mm. if i had panicked at that moment it likely could have gotten worse my hip would have seized up more i would have like subconsciously tightened each of those muscles onto the nerve etc um i'm curious if you've had any experiences with that mind body connection and in, in competition or in the outdoors well i would say that i've been just profoundly blessed with health and have been lucky to avoid injury in the fields at which I've practiced. I've broken my collarbone and separated my AC a couple of times and, you know, had some, some other minor injuries, but for the most part, I've, I've remained healthy. And one of the reasons I think that I've remain healthy is because I haven't been doing endurance sports, which really take the mechanics of your movement and take it to the limit that if the mechanic is wrong, it's going to show up over time in pain and dysfunction. As I now start to train as an endurance athlete, yeah, I have been working with my PT to fix my posture so that I'm standing properly just throughout the day so that my nerves are not agitated when I begin to work my hips and legs a lot. As far as the mind-body connection, it's interesting because, you know, skiing is like, skiing is this thing where you use your head and your imagination to really like control your body. Where highlining is this thing where you use your experience to train your body, but then your body does it, right? Like I can't make my body balance on a slack line. My body balances on a slack line. I can keep myself focused. I can remind myself of certain postures. I can reassure myself. I can calm myself, soothe myself, encourage myself. But at the end of the day, my brain doesn't say left knee out, right foot there, bend back, L2 down. Er. It doesn't work like that. My body is the emergent system that balances across a two kilometer long slack line. In paragliding, cross country paragliding, my body doesn't do shit. The lefts and rights of paragliding are quite simple. The mechanics are simple. And it's all this crazy head observation, intuition, decision-making thing. So I would say that in each of my sports, the mind-body connection is quite different, uh, but I experience it in a lot of them where I, I've experienced it you know, for a long time. And so it's in interesting to reflect on the differences there. I'd love to transition to, to brinksmanship. I, I love the three intersecting rings of what's reckless, what's comfortable, and what's irrelevant. I'm I'm curious if you could describe it and then share how it how it came about, how you developed it. Okay. Do you do you have that pulled up? I do. Yeah. Share it on the screen here. Sure. So this is a little uh, a Venn diagram, a three circle Venn diagram that I made to try to illustrate my process 
that is like an embedded process. This was a way that I was trying to verbalize it so that I could present it at the STOA on a presentation that I think was titled um, Living at Your Knife's Edge. And it's like, this is uh, a little diagram that I titled The Edge Finder. And it's a little overlapping Venn diagram of, of how to find your edge. And the three circles are what I really want to do, or I'm inspired to do, or I think is fucking awesome. That's like passion, right? The other one is what I think I can possibly do, which is belief. And then the third circle is what scares the shit out of me. In the center of these three overlapping circles is what I refer to as my edge. And when I talk about living at my edge and pushing myself to my edge, or when we talk about brinksmanship, this is the brink where my passion and my belief overlap is comfortable. That's where I spend most of my time practicing. It's where I build success. It's where I progress. It's where I have repetition doing the tricks that I know. I, I believe I can do them. I'm inspired to do them. So I do them. That's the comfortable. That's between passion and belief. Belie between belief and fear is what I think is irrelevant because there's no inspiration. If there's not, if I don't really want to do it, I think I can, but it's scary, but I don't want to, then it's irrelevant. It's uninspired and it's an unnecessary risk. Between the passion and the fear is reckless. It's in over your head. It's dangerous because it's not overlapping with the things that you believe you can do. So right in the middle there is this edge. It's what you're passionate about, what you believe is possible. And I don't mean like, I know I can do this first try without ever falling. I mean that I believe that if I try and work and try that I can achieve that. That's what I mean by belief. And then fear is what scares me. And sometimes you find that fear because what you're really inspired to do and what you think you can possibly do scares the shit out of you already. Sometimes you don't have to wade into the, like the extra scary to find your edge. Usually what you haven't achieved, but you think is possible and you're really passionately inspired to do is going to feel scary to begin with. And it's also, you know, another thing I think I talked about in that is that, you know, for the vast majority of our time, we spend in this comfortable zone between what you're passionate about and what you believe you can do. And it's only on those certain days where it's like, oh, this is the opportunity. You know, the muse is with me. I feel it. Today is my day to push. Today is my day to try. And that's when you actually go out on the edge because a real Brinksman doesn't live his life on the edge. That's foolish. Mistakes happen. We need a margin for error in our lives. Like we like, we don't walk around on the edge unnecessarily. We don't want to spend too much time there. It's a existential risk. So we try to be sensitive to the days where the stars align, the constellation of my own 
inner world and the outer world line up and it's like it becomes obvious that it's the day to push something that comes up there is i um an observation i've made is that a, a lot of really great athletes i know are like have embraced as opposed to repressed what scares them where it's possible to try and ignore try and react to fear as a negative emotion and push it away versus recognizing it for the utility that that emotion has yeah i mean repressing what you feel is to go in the opposite direction of evolution and i can build this case um yeah i think it's worth doing I'll build the case for why sensitivity is like an synonymous with evolution. And this is um, something that I've learned from Daniel Schmachtenberger. So I could also credit it to Ken Wilber as well, integral theory. But if we take the example of mollusks, Mollusks are really, really old creatures. They are dinosaurs. Their path on evolution took them into a cul-de-sac of insensitivity where they built shells around their bodies and they became hardened to the outside environment. Because of this hardness, because of this insensitivity, they're not sensitive to changes in temperature and, and and predators and they're just these hard little rocks that have a soft little inside and so because of this insensitivity it's a cul-de-sac of evolution they don't change so for hundreds and hundreds of millions of years the mollusks stay the same they're in a cul-de-sac where primates are hard on the inside soft on the outside Humans, we have an incredible array of sensitivities. Our sensory um, faculties are just astounding. I can feel the wind on my face. I can notice temperature differences, very subtle. I can hear things and I can triangulate where they're coming from. My eyesight is incredibly acute. My sense of smell, my sense of taste, my sense of touch, my gut intuition. What this does is that as the environment changes around me, I change. I continue to evolve. That's why humans as we are, we're like a 10,000 year species, a hundred thousand year species. You know, we start going back much more than that. We start seeing ourselves change a lot. Not to mention that we change, we evolve culturally and spiritually and, and relationally, you know, in our lifetime. So, and to bring like the integral lens onto this is that evolution is synonymous with increasing complexity. A mollusk is not nearly as complex as you are. As a system becomes more and more complex, it garners and is granted deeper and deeper levels of sensitivity. 
right? An elephant can literally cry for its lost child. It can mourn and it can mourn for years, but a dog can't. And that's because an elephant is more complex than a dog. It has a deeper, it has a deeper sensitivity to its experience. Ken Wilber says that this complexity is also synonymous with consciousness. There's no difference. A rock has consciousness. It's just very simple. And so it doesn't have a lot of it. And a mollusk has consciousness, but not very much of it. And a dog has more and an elephant still. And humans, we find that even inside of the species of humans, we look at people with varying degrees of developmental depth, and we can refer to that as consciousness. So to kind of wind back here to tie it together is that the, the sensitivity, I think the case or what I claimed I would make here is the case that sensitivity is analogous with evolution and, and, and that your original question was that you notice that some people reject their feelings of fear and other people embrace it. And There is a really, um, like, there's a big difference between those two things and how you embrace your feelings. And there is also a really large spectrum of how sensitive you can be to those feelings and how you can notice their color, their texture, their intensity, their frequency, their duration, um, their depth their triggers, their, your responses, all of these things around that, that's a, a just increasing levels of sensitivity. So in general, I don't recommend that anyone reject the way they feel. That's just beating yourself down into lower levels of sensitivity, which is lower levels of complexity, which is lower levels of consciousness. You are hampering, you are deadening yourself. You're going against the flow of the universe to do that. And I can see like the art of brinksmanship being an art of developing increased sensitivity mm-hmm. to what you're inspired by versus what you're deeply inspired by versus what you've been conditioned for socially versus like what you like believe is possible versus what like is self-limiting beliefs that you've, you've shut down and what you believe is possible and what you fear versus well, I don't think it exists outside of our social conditioning. Um, that's just the, those are the cards you're dealt. Those are the cards you're dealt. You know, my familial origin story and my aspirations to do more and more exciting, astounding, spectacular tricks is one and the same. Those are two sides of the same coin. I was inspired to achieve and to push myself and to face my fear. And I was also hoping to have some kind of recognition, to belong, to be approved of, to be loved, to be cared for. So those are the two sides of the same coin there. So it's not necessarily parsing out what is my social conditioning and what is not. 
passion is just passion. Our psyches develop as a response to our environment and they're going to find passion in what they find passion with. I think you were blessed with passion from an early age. I think it, for many people, it's a, it's an exploration of finding that passion and oh, sensitivity of, of what truly lights you up. I completely agree. But to, to try to distinguish my passion from my wounds is a mistake. You can't do it. My passion to do spectacular things and my desire to be seen, they're the same thing. It's a sweet wound, man. It's a sweet wound. Yeah, I'm trying to unpack what, what I'm pointing to when it comes to like greater sensitivity of, of what we're inspired by and how that intersects with, with our wound. Because I, cause I, that, that wasn't top of mind for me. So I'm trying to like unpack it with my initial thought. Okay, let me, I'll just elaborate a little bit on that. My point is essentially that the things that you're going to be passionate about are emergent. If you've ever read Sam Harris's Free Will, I love this example that he gives. Whether you like coffee or whether you like tea is not something you decide. You don't decide your preferences. Right? Like our preferences emerge in consciousness. So do our capacities. We can grow our capacities. But whether you're an analytical thinker or a great reader and writer or a dyslexic, you don't choose that. Yeah, I guess what, what, what's impacted my thinking here is um, I, I think of the difference between track and field and, and mountain sports in, um, in that... Um, they're similar and both require an, an awful lot of discipline, both a, um, like an intimate, uh, it's you and your own, own body against the clock or against some very individual and, and both, are um, like very much there's how conditioned you are on, on the day of a competition, but that isn't as fact as much by like how much pain you're willing to inflict on yourself on, on the day. You can, you can like frame it other ways, but ultimately like any endurance sport is, is like, how far can you push your, your, your body? Um, and I, I think about like th there's deep reward in being a track athlete on like having rituals around that. Um, but I think since moving to like mountain biking or trail running, there's just such a, a deeper richness in like having a relationship with the outdoors of, of taking, and, and maybe this is just on my, rather than, I, I think I need to pass my own experience with like the objective experience of finding what you're passionate about. But for me, I, um, in going from being passionate about track and field to passionate about mountain sports, it feels like it was an unfolding to find just how meaningful it was. Absolutely. You couldn't yeah. have, you couldn't have found, I mean, I would propose that you couldn't have found mountain sports in the way you did. Had you not had a foundation of track and field, if you didn't know how to move then moving in the mountains is a, this doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. Right. 
Yeah, that's a, that's a great way to put it. And it's funny, this so this project is about exploring the the deeper lessons you learn from the outdoors and like how that can be turned into a conscious practice. And and I wouldn't have taken it from this lens if I didn't discover it at 23 or mm. after that stage of, of development. Mm. Kind of pulling back though and in, into the the utility of the brinksmanship model. I, I think um, developing a philosophy around like working at the edge and playing at the edge of what you're passionate about, what you believe you believe is possible for you and what, what scares you is a, like a, a very powerful philosophy for life and playing in the outdoors is like a way to train that every single day to develop that sensitivity mm-hmm. and like develop that muscle. Is there ways outside outside of just playing outdoors that you're able to apply this? Mm-hmm. Oh, of course. And they also manifest from just who I am as well. I think that, I mean, whether it was my own, just like how I am or my experiences as a athlete, I think I've conditioned myself to pretty powerful stimulation and that manifests relationally right? I have a certain depth of intimacy that I prefer in my, in all of my relationships from my best male friends to my intimate partners. And that is both a preference and a capacity that is grown by what I do every day, how I spend my time, what I give my attention to. I guess the, you know, to go back just a, one step here and to kind of bring that forward into this is that one of the things that I'm trying to, that I, I hear myself trying to say is that everyone's path is going to be different and everyone's innate capacities are different. And I grew up in a world and maybe you too, that gave me a pretty standard platter of options as to who I was and what I was going to be. And I didn't altogether reject it, but I tried. So the sensitivity piece is just kind of like being easy on yourself. Um, which I think gets you in the door of knowing yourself. And then the path that you're going to find yourself of from track into the mountains or from track into the stock market is going to unfold. And the only way to know that it's right is if you're sensitive to it. So how we, you know, like I love that you know, there's, there's lessons that the mountains teach us that we can, that we can garner in our lives. But if we need every single person to go into the mountains, to learn the lessons that help them live a life that's meaningful and fulfilling to them, that, that makes them sensitive to their capacities and their preferences and the things that light them up, then we're fucked. We are absolutely fucked. If 
the lessons that we learn in the mountains can't be applicable to people who live less radical lifestyles and have lower risk tolerances, then we're fucked. Because we really need electrical engineers to be on their edge too. Right? That's not to say that electrical engineers can't go into the mountains and enjoy their time or learn things from there, but we need this model of the edge finder of brinksmanship to be applicable to every walk of life so that more people are activated in their power, in their capacity, in their autonomy, in their passion. Because we need that, like we need that for innovation. We need that for collective fulfillment. We need that so that our children are raised without feeling like they're burdens. We need better parents. We need better leaders. We need everyone, like we need a kind of an up-leveling all around. I guess is your, your aim there is that the brinksmanship model needs to be applied to all aspects or... Or just take that one step further. Not necessarily that it needs to be, but that anything that's true is applicable broadly. Mm. And I guess that uh, there's another thing I hear myself pushing against is like the internet culture that that glamorizes mountain athletes, and in doing so, creates space for people to have shame that they don't want to go and push themselves and do flips. And it also on the flip side of that, it kind of just makes me a spectacle that is like a monkey dancing that it's rare that I get the chance to be appreciated for the lessons that I bring back as opposed to dance, monkey, dance, do another flip. But let's leave that one. Let's we'll, we'll tangent that. That's just my own thing. But the, you know, the culture of like what is praised and what is glamorized is a negative, can, can, be a, can be a very inspiring thing for some people, but it's also the thing that creates FOMO. And FOMO is a role self. FOMO is a role self. That's what we should be doing. That's a, a role self? Yeah, so... Basically, there's levels of development of consciousness in humans. And it starts with mine, meaning that there is an object and it is mine. It is my hand. And then it is my mother. And then it is my object. Okay. Like dogs can have this, right? Dogs fight over bones. And then there is a me, which is the role self. These are the identities that were given by our families and our society. And these are the ways in which we imitate and we learn how to fit in, in a gross way, right? In a coarse way. After me, there's I, which is the individuated self, which transcends and includes mine, physical bodies and objects, me, my role self, how I fit in, how I relate, and then transcends into a individuated self. So we have to go through the role self process and we're constantly kind of like 
going into it to find our path. Like we try new things and we imitate other people and we buy new gear and we try backcountry skiing for a season and we see, oh, wait, does this, does this feel right? And in the beginning, we have to imitate. We just have to like do what backcountry skiers do. And then we can, it's not even that we decide, but we find ourselves in a more authentic activity that it is my individuated self, my passion and my desire is leading me to ski in the mountain. And so what I'm trying to guide us towards here is away from the role self that the internet tells us that we need to perform at peak. We need to find peak experience. First of all, that we need to do a certain kind of activity in a certain place at a certain intensity and push us towards this individuated self, which is takes a deep sensitivity of who we are, what our internal landscape is, how it guides us, where it guides us to, and that we can let go of what everyone else is doing. We can let go of this like onslaught of conditioning that the internet and Instagram gives us of what we should be doing, the FOMO, the, the self-shame, right? Because if like, if you're sensitive and it guides you into the mountains, awesome. And if you're sensitive and it guides you to be a social worker, like I need you to go be a social worker. Like, like even if your role self tells you that you need to be a mountain athlete, like, yeah, and your individuated self tells you you need to be a social worker. Like obviously the individuated sovereign interdependent version of you is the one that we would rather have in the world because the role self is just given to you. That's your, that is your conditioning. That is your like societal expectation. That's exactly what that is. Mm, I'm, yeah. You, you spout that out really, really. Um, yeah. I, I hear you in that there is like, it, it's funny. It, like mountain sports have really exploded in popularity, especially post like COVID. Um, and it, I guess this, this project has been exploring the deeper lessons you can learn and the, the transformative potential. But what I'm hearing from this and, and this is that that has to be passed from the role self that there is this, the same way. I, I think it was the, the idea you, uh, from big magic of that like if these ideas inhabit us there, there is this element of conditioning this meme of our role self of of how awesome we'll look in our profile picture in the mountains and it's very easy to let that take over and and part of the sensitivity is being able to pass like the the transformative aspect or what we're the deeper lessons that we're getting on moving us towards our individuated self from the superficial, like let's try and take a, let's try and get a good photo of me hitting this drop or hitting this jump, or let's get a good shot on the summit kind of thing. Uh huh. Yeah. And as we talk about this, I want to just iterate again that your role self is not something to shame. We all have it. Um, 
you know, Benita Roy suggests that 80 to 90% of Western individuals are never going to leave their role self. 80 to 90%. That is essentially a big enough number that I nearly have to assume that I'm just still in it. (laughs) Or that I occupy, that a big part of my decisions in any given day are occupied by that role self, are driven by that role self. Yeah. So it's something that, that I go in and out of. And so I don't want to shame it and I want to understand it. And I want to have a loving awareness of it so that I can see where I'm being guided by my role self and where something really feels super aligned. When is my day to push, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure this, this like fits in here, but what, what comes to mind is this idea of, uh, I, I often imagine culture as this like air, like this this vibe of consciousness that you walk into as you get ingrained into it. And and how it like landed for me is I uh I lived in Bolivia as a year for a year as a as a mountain bike guide earning three dollars an hour. You can't really order anything like any equipment or gear. Um you've gotta like get people who are flying in to bring it with you or get it from like the secondhand market. Um and like during that time w- when I was doing the most stuff outdoors, gear wasn't in- important. Like, you, like if, you, if you found really good waterproof, waterproof gear, amazing. But you generally just doubt with being wet and cold most of the time. Mm. Um, I didn't like pay attention to vehicles. Like different bikes were nice, but, but there weren't like that many different opportunities. It was difficult to get bikes in, so you didn't really care about it. And to moving to Canada, it was amazing over a six-month period. Like mm. how much more I started appreciating these nice, these nice Tacoma trucks and and wow, that like wow, that Santa Cruz bike is so nice. Wow, that gear. And it was almost like as I entered that vibe of North American consumer culture, mm. it just engulfed me, you know, mm. where it wasn't present at all in South America. Yeah. And that's I have a hard time believing that that part is anyone's real individuated self. That part of the culture. Surely there are engineers, there are innovators, there are people who are tinkerers who want to make things better, who want to continue to chip away at that in whatever they're passionate about. And that's not necessarily what I'm speaking to. I'm not speaking to the culture of innovation, but more of the culture of just a fixation, obsession with what is new, what is expensive, what is cool, what is you know, the next thing, right? Because it's 2022, you know, one of my best friends is an Olympian mountain biker and, and has been on the R and D teams for some of the biggest brands for almost 20 years now. And he says, it's 2022. The bikes are awesome. Like we can pretty much just stop there. That gets us 99% of the way there. All the brands, every bike in the last six years and last 10 years fucking rips. It's like, you know, so I think the entire aftermarket culture and so much of the culture of our equipment is like this last 1%, the squabble over last 1%. Yeah. And that's not to say that I, I'm not shaming that either. Right. It's like, like I want a new paraglider. I would love a Zeno too. Like, obviously it's better than the last one. It's like, it's faster, you know, objectively. So I would love that. Um, 
I'm not shaming that. I'm just the difference that you're pointing to is that when it's not available, it's not even in your head. And then you come back and it's like permeates every aspect of the entire experience from getting to the trailhead to the entire loop to all the way back to town. And then what you read about and how you, how you even interpret your own experience, you know, and I, I speak from my own perspective here. Like if I have a great paragliding flight on a brand new paraglider, it's like so much of my experience is through the lens of this new object. Hmm. Yeah. I really like to think of it of the idea that like I ideas inhabit us. And, and I'm thinking about this line that Will said of that the first like marketers in the early 20th century, the first snake oil sales salespeople came from the religious circuit. They were preachers. Oh. And it's, and if you look at it from like an esoteric lens, it's like a, a spell of consumerism mm. of wanting more of insecurity that's mm. cast into the air. And it's absolutely taken over the West in the last century. And that's, I think, I think that's a great way to put what I've been trying to push back on that everyone needs more shit to have a transcendental experience or needs more shit to be in the mountains needs the newest stuff, you know, like you just don't, you just don't like, that's just not part of it objectively, but it is sold to you like a religion in British Columbia. Yeah. You know, um, that's to, that's to say nothing about the objective performance of the object. Right. But the fact is that you just like people have been having transcendental experiences on mountain bikes for a lot longer than they've been as sick as they are now. So if we're trying to alchemize our peak experiences, and if we're trying to put ourselves in positions to have the most fulfilling, meaningful, sovereign life we can, we have to parse out what really has control over that and what doesn't. Mm. I guess we're coming up at a time here. Um, I'm cu- curious if there's anything else uh, relevant to this topic you'd like to put out there. Hmm. It's funny because I feel like we never really got, we never really zoomed in on the brinksmanship thing. Although we like danced around it for a long time from a mm. number of different angles. And I think I mentioned it, but I think it's worth reiterating that. And maybe I've been trying to say it the whole time. But the edge is something that you should feel blessed to find. And that you should be grateful when you get to be there. And that you should lower your expectations of how often you're going to be there and what it's going to feel like. And that you should set goals of what you can do and not what's going to happen because of it. And as I say this, I say it to myself. I say it to myself. I say it so that I can try to minimize the amount of grasping I do and FOMO and 
disappointment, resentment. Finding your edge is such a blessing for yourself and others. It's like literally the thing that the world needs is people who are living on their individuated edge and they're sensitive to how that fits in the world. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing really. And it's, um, I've been, you know, my philosophical coaching practice lately has, it basically is kind of tuned to answer this question to help people find their edge. Beautifully said. Oh, well, Ari, it's been an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate you coming on, taking this time to, to go deep on this. Um, where's the best place for people to find you for philosophical coaching, your podcast, what else are you doing? Yeah. So my website's airyintheair.com. My name is Ari, A-R-I. Um, and that has my adventure films, my YouTube channel, my podcast, my philosophical coaching, all that stuff. Um, and yeah, you can sign up for the newsletter. I kind of write my musings like a sub stack there. And yeah, I'd love to hear from people. Cool. Thanks, Ari. Thank you, Tim. Thanks for listening to Mountain Whispers. It's a lot of really great content online. So it means a lot. You chose to listen to this to the end. I really like the line at the end of the edge is something you should be blessed to find. You should be grateful when you get to be there. You should lower your expectations of how often you be there and what it feels like. You should set goals of what you want to do, not what you want to happen because of it. Juicy. Really like that. I also liked his, his point on the glamorization of mountain culture. You know, I started this project to explore the transformative elements of mountain culture. But I haven't really thought about how the glamorization of the culture can actually disrupt transformation. How it's so easy to fall into what he calls the role self and begin to orientate towards the image of how we'll be perceived by others as opposed to just getting outdoors and forming that relationship there. Anyway, thanks again for listening. You'll see some great show notes in there. If you enjoyed this, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all that stuff, or even better, uh, send a link to this episode to a friend. It means a lot. feels a lot better that way. Again, I always say I try and drop this every second Wednesday and Thursday. Life so often gets in the way. Um, Maybe I'll get better, maybe I don't. Who knows? It's going to drop a random Wednesday or Thursday. Anyway, much love. Take it easy.